Awesome. Shruti, thank you so much for taking the time out and being with us today for the Founder Forward, which is a series of conversations with founders who have gone beyond seed and, of course, successfully not just started but scaled their companies. The edit of this webinar really stemmed from our Fast Forward Seed Investment Program. And while raising your first institutional check is definitely hard, finding the first person to believe in you and your idea. Beyond that, we've often got asked, what does it take to go beyond seed? It's the beginning of your journey as a founder and the unknowns and variables. Um, so through these 30, 40 minute sessions, our aim is to learn from founders like yourself from your journey and share drops of wisdom for all our seed stage founders listening in. We have an active community of actually over 40,000 early stage uh, founders, and we hope to share this with all of them. On that note, welcome Shruti. Shruti is a graduate from NUS Singapore and I am A and she describes herself as a polymath, I think like all of us should, and possesses vast experience across numerous fields, life sciences, uh, investment banking, even venture capital, fintech, and of course, sales enablement. Prior to founding Wingman, she was part of Pioneer's India founding team where she ran business development and banking relationships, after which she founded Wingman the aim of empowering sales reps. So she is also a trained life and executive coach and publishes a newsletter, Feeling Sazzy, on LinkedIn, where she's extensively written about her startup and her experience from not just founding, but scaling and exiting Wingman. Shruti, thank you so much and welcome once again. Thanks, Anjali. That was a very generous introduction. <laughs> so Shruti, since I saw VC on your you know, experience, I have to start with that. You know, your longest stint was, in fact, with intellectual ventures. Just keen and curious to know what aspects of evaluating founders and business models and just incubating ideas as a VC did you choose to apply or maybe even not apply in your own journey building Wingman? Absolutely. So intellectual ventures was a little bit different from a uh, traditional VC. What intellectual ventures with the Invention Development Fund was doing was investing in actually really early stage technologies, often coming out of, you know, university research, in some cases coming out of startups or, you know, even a tinkerer's garage, so to speak. So I would say that the evaluation there was, you know, on a few different dimensions. Of course, I think the big common one that lands up being is the TAM for the idea, right? What is the total market that this idea could address? But apart from that, because those are technologies that it that was so much more early stage and the model was that intellectual ventures would kind of then, you know, buy out the IP for that technology and, you know, then try to monetize it by developing the technology or doing some sort of, a, you know, IP licensing deal or product development. So it, it had a very different set of variables because, you know, the founders, you know, the big thing that a VC needs to evaluate is, I feel two things, right? Like one is what is the market size and two, can the founder make this journey succeed, right? So is there a founder market fit, et cetera? In the case of intellectual ventures, the second thing wasn't as big a component because they, they were in many ways becoming the founders, but yeah. Interesting. You also mentioned about, you know, Wingman's origin ideas that they were inspired from your time at Pioneer and given the work that you were doing. And I also know that it wasn't one particular aha moment, but like a period of time to exactly arrive at the problem statement that Wingman was trying to solve for. But would love to know that backstory of maybe the 12 months before actually starting up. Yeah, I think, you know, the backstories to the startups are often more interesting than the startups themselves, right? 
So for me, it was it was definitely a process where just from a startup journey perspective, one was I knew that I wanted to start up, and you know my reason for starting up was just that I felt having been on the sidelines, you know, through my years in intellectual ventures, and somehow somewhere I was just like dying to go out there and be able to do something completely on my own. So I think that existed. And then you need two other things to come together. One is, I think, a founding team. And the third thing is an idea of what you actually want to start up. So I think, you know, the order varies for different people. For me, it was, you know, that idea of wanting to start up existed. I then met my founders. And then the three of us were like, okay, now we have a team. And now we need to go figure out what we want to actually solve and build. So that was one part of the journey. And then within figuring out the idea, we actually looked at, you know, a few different things which we took to different levels. I would say like different types of validations. We would go speak to potential customers for each of those ideas that we were evaluating. We might have even tried to prototype them with different data sets, et cetera. With this, of course, it was much easier for it to click for me because I was facing and, you know, running that problem day on day. And the problem really was that I felt it was very disjointed between what a sales team hears from the customers and how much that voice of customer doesn't reach the product and the marketing teams. And I think Pioneer landed up just being a perfect situation to see that problem being amplified because, you know, the sales team was sitting in India and you had the product and marketing team centralized and sitting in Israel. And so through that time, I was aware of the problem, but it still takes some time to figure out, you know, is this a problem that only I'm facing? Are there other people facing that problem? And if I build the solution, then how do people actually think of it, right? So what we then started doing was we said, okay, if this is the problem and this is how I'm thinking of solving it. So my immediate reaction was, yeah, I want to, you know, record these sales calls, transcribe them and make them searchable, right? So that was the very simple MVP for the product. I then started talking to other salespeople and I said, you know, if you had this, what would you do with it? And you then realize that you get like a variety of answers. And, you know, in our case, the answers were around, oh, I would want to be able to use this for coaching or, oh, you know what? My team varies in their performance. You know, I have somebody who's doing X in quota, somebody who's doing 5X. You know, it would be great because I know exactly how much improvement I can make if I can actually coach them more scientifically. But what you realize is you get all these answers, but they are very often in that ideal world of this is what is missing. And if I have this, you know, everything else will be all right. Right. But what you don't realize, it's it's like, you know, you buy a, a treadmill in the house, you're suddenly not going to get fitter or lose weight. Right. Somebody still has to use the treadmill and become part of the process. So, so the process for us was going from saying, oh, this is the ideal situation to how are people using the product? And then like, you know, iterating on saying, how do people get value out of it? But, you know, I think in the pre-12 month period, it was largely about doing the first three things, you know, figuring out the founding team, figuring out the idea. And then trying to validate it with people and making sure that we were not just living in our own dream world. And how did you translate this vision to Murli and Shrika? And we know typically some founders come together because they've worked together before and they've faced the problem from some angle or the other together. In your case, this was slightly different. So what got them excited? You spoke about your journey doing BD previously, but what got them excited about this vision? And you know, how did how did they say, hey, let's do this together? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think especially because of the nature of this idea, right, it wasn't something that is 
necessarily you know if you are not in sales and if you are not in b2b sales like it's hard for people to imagine how the solution will work or what are the real problems that people face so i think it was kind of a journey i would say it took shrikar you know to uh, for a long time he would still joke around and say i don't even know like you know why this is so important because like while he was seeing people using it he was just like this doesn't make sense to me because this is just so far removed from you know the work that he does mm-hmm. um so i would say that you know sometimes people don't necessarily have to understand the end impact of the solution with the same kind of emotional relevance as one person might but i think what happens over a period of time is they kind of build trust with me and with the people that we spoke to about that problem and so it wasn't so much that all of us were like oh yes this problem i have felt in my own gut and i know you know how painful this is i think we all had kind of different levels of at least first hand experience with the problem uh, but we all had to go through the journey of saying whether this is a real problem and for some of us it was just saying okay you know what we've spoken to 50 people and they all think this is a real problem and this is painful so let's do it but you know the the kind of relationship is different interesting and you've also mentioned previously that big reason why startup fails is also because of strain founder relationship and i know yc says that very often as well so starting out i always say expectation setting especially in like multi founding teams where each of you have different roles is also important not just who's going to focus on what but also incentives everything from equity to as you scale and grow you know how does the team expand so what were some of those let's just say intersay between the founders the non negotiables that the three of you discussed and the expectation setting that you did among the three of you before you set out to raise external capital or, or even actually formally incorporating bit going yeah so i think for us we were a lot more kind of deliberate with it very mm-hmm. simply because the three of us work in a new relationship right I did not know Murli and Shrikar from before starting the company. I mean, I had known them only through the phase that we were trying to ideate together about the company. But you know, our context for knowing each other was the startup, which is I understand somewhat unusual, but not not all that unusual today because I hear a lot more people looking for a co-founding team. And so, because of that, we felt that we should almost sit down and get aligned on a few basic things, which were just actually the end of it like you know really personal things but just that people don't often voice them out right like simple things like hey why do you want to start up like what happens if you know what is the timeline you are giving yourself for this to succeed or fail right what happens if you know there is an exit event like what is your threshold for saying uh, you know this is acceptable to me this is not acceptable to me right and then like you know just just understanding each other's context for why they were doing this and what was the joy or outcome they were looking at from it and also what their core values and principles were right around working so some of these things we actually like del- like you know literally took a piece of paper wrote out the questions and said you know all three of us will sit down and write this together and then we'll just read it out exchange notes discuss it so that we are on the same page so we actually did that as part of the exercise it and then i think the uh, what became clear to us was that we kind of knew right like our interests were aligned 
some of us were doing it for like more intellectual stimulation. Some of us were doing it as maybe a way for, you know, getting to your FU money outcomes, yeah. but at least knew where everybody was coming from. And I think that was important. It did, It wasn't that everybody needed to have the same answer, but everybody needed to know each other's answers. Mm. So I think that was an important part. But I think along the way, we also kind of made several mistakes that we learned from, right? So I think one of the things is that, you know, three of us at that point had all already worked for 10 plus years, right? We were all coming from having come from, you know, great colleges, great pedigrees. So you also have a set of expectations and pressure that you put on yourself where you feel that like, I still, I'm like still proving myself to my founding team. And I think that can actually be a negative energy going in because what happens then is you're going to focus a lot more on excelling in your part of what you define your work versus trying to get the team together and focusing on getting the company to succeed. So I think that is a journey that you kind of need to become aware of. I'm sure we went into this with a little bit of that nervous energy. And then over a period of time, we realized that, you know, we needed to be a lot more flexible with our roles. We needed to be a lot more flexible in thinking what our job is today versus what it will be six months from now, right? And therefore thinking about how we hire and build teams bases that. Plus also being able to, you know, step in and say, hey, I will do something that is not what I have done for the last 10 years, because that is part of the startup journey, right? So, you know, while Murli and Shrika were both from the tech side, you know, they were okay to raise their hand and say, hey, I will go and do customer demos so that I get to hear more from the customer and I'm I'm okay to learn through that, right? Like one of them said, you know, I will go and do support. I'll be like the first support rep. So I know where things are breaking. So I think it's really important that founders are, you know, willing to break the boundaries of this is what my comfort zone is and this is what I'm good at doing. And so let me just do what I'm good at doing. And now on the other side of a successful exit, would you actually recommend that um, to founding teams saying that deliberately sit and ask the uncomfortable questions, do this expectation setting exercise because it, it actually enables you know, navigate more smoothly and easily and exit in an outcome for you as a team? Absolutely. I think one, yes, do the expectation setting exercise. And two, I think almost revisit that at least every year because, mm -hmm. you know, people's personal situations change, people's motivations change. And therefore, it's actually important to also be open to the fact that how people are thinking about things might be different. And I think the second thing is like, you know, don't swim in parallel swim lanes you have to be okay to collide with each other, to question each other. You cannot be in a situation where this is, you know, sales and marketing is my domain. And so don't question me and I won't question you on product. Like you have to be okay to be challenged and to create the space for that to happen. So one of the things that we did, I think that helped us was we would literally go for a walk every afternoon and, you know, it was just a no agenda. You could talk about whatever was on top of your mind. And that was the space which was around, oh, this is what is troubling me. And I think this is not what is not working well. So that, you know, while each of us is expert in what we do, but the other person might at least be able to understand that, okay, this is why this person is stressed out or, you know, can I get them additional help? Maybe there's somebody I can connect them with. So it's important to make sure that you're not swimming in parallel swim lanes. Fantastic. And Coming to navigating your first institutional fundraise, of course, you got into YC in 2019 and raised a seed round together as part of YC, and then you went straight to exit. But just sticking to that, the seed, seed raise itself, 
And I, I know it's YC and people will say that, hey, you're YC, so of course it's easy for you to raise, but take us through both the easy and the not so easy aspects of closing out your first institutional check. Sure. So actually, we were kind of lucky in the sense we had a term sheet before we had even incorporated the company. But eventually, just because of the complexity of actually incorporating a company with the US-India structure, you know, it took us almost a year to actually get a company that could receive funding. And by the time YC happened, and so we decided to kind of merge the two rounds and, you know, just kind of raise it as a single round. I think, you know, for us in that early days, right, like pre-YC, when we were still thinking that we should maybe go and fundraise and like, you know, we were just kind of very, very, very early, right? We got, you know, we, we got our fair share of rejections, right? And I can, and, you know, it can definitely feel disheartening. I think a few things that we learned from it was that, you know, one people are going to have an opinion that gets formed based on a bunch of background research, which has nothing to do with you, right, or with your company. And so sometimes, you know, when you get a rejection, which is based on, you know, their point of view on the space, or maybe they spoke to somebody who's, you know, like, there are so many things that you can't control and that you don't know. It's okay, right? Like, you don't have to win every one of them into a yes. And you don't have to question every no into a, oh, is this, going, does this mean that my company is not viable, right? So I think that was an important piece. And the second piece was that, you know, the the process itself can feel extremely endless because different people look at different things that they want to de-risk. But what we realized later on was that it's okay to actually go in and try to ask a few questions from the VC as well to figure out what is it that they're trying to de-risk and trying to understand. And, you know, it's okay if you don't have the answers and if you're not going to convert that particular VC, but hopefully that gives you an understanding for how people are thinking about the space, right? So, you know, you've made your pitch. It's okay to pause and say, hey, so what's on your mind? You know, tell me what is going to prevent you from writing this check. And like, it's okay to kind of go in and try to tease out some of those objections because once people are out of that room, they are going to forget that they had that conversation. They're going to probably remember 10% of what they spoke about and they'll have just one general opinion. And what you're trying to do is in that moment, figure out what that general opinion is and why. So that, you know, if at least in your next pitch, you can find out how to change those general opinions. I'm keen to ask if through navigating that journey, was a was there any actionable feedback that you received while navigating that fundraise, especially given you were still ideating? You mentioned that you hadn't even incorporated or figured out an investable structure yet. So there were some flexibilities. And did you actually therefore take that feedback or, or mostly you felt like, you know, just ignore some of the feedback, but keen to understand if some of it was insightful and actionable what came from the early VCs? Yeah, that's a great question. I feel it's very tough to take feedback from VCs because, as I said, there can be so many different biases, right? And and so I, I would say that, like, we did take some feedback, but I would say, like, you know, take feedback with a huge spoonful or a bucket full of salt uh, because you just don't know what the motivations are from which the feedback is coming, right? I think some the feedback that we, so I'll give you an example of a feedback that we got very often, which, you know, proved out to be wrong. Some feedback that we got very often that eventually maybe, you know, we should have considered that we didn't. 
right? So I think an example on one side of it was the fact that people were like, hey, nobody in their right minds will be okay to record their sales calls because, you know, it's such a sensitive thing. You don't know what gets discussed in a sales call. Sometimes there are kickbacks, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, this is just like a very childish idea, right? And of course, clearly today, everybody's okay to record all sorts of calls and it's and it's not considered, you know, out of the world to be recording, right? So the human behavior part of it, right, which is always hard for anybody to predict and how quickly that changes. I think the part of the feedback that we, you know, maybe was a yes or a no was the fact that how do you think of a space when you already have a few competitors in the space who are maybe a little bit ahead of you, right? So when we started out, you know, the two big players in the space had started out a year or year and a half before us. So of course, when we started ideating, right, they were also still relatively new. But by the time we kind of started going to market, we were hearing more and more about them. And so, you know, for a lot of the VCs, it was like, okay, you know, why should I care about the number three player in a space, right? Now, do you at that point, so I would say that it, what it did was it forced us to think a lot more about what our differentiation was and how, what was our point of view in the space that was different from, you know, the other two players. And so we did take that advice and we did, you know, kind of build out a solidly different aspect to the product and also a philosophy to the product, which was in our case around doing real-time sales feedback. But yeah. Interesting. And so obviously post-term sheet, post-YC, and, and I'm sure you went in with a lot of confidence because it's very rare for a company, especially in today's macro to get a term sheet even before they start. But keen to understand the post, like what were the first 100 days like and what were the things that made you made you nervous or uncomfortable? Post-YC? Yeah, post-term sheet or post-funding, yeah. Right. So I think, of course, everybody understands that, you know, when you get the funding and or maybe when it gets announced or whatever timeline you want to put it in, you know, a clock starts ticking, right? Like every, like you kind of are then expected to get to your next milestone in 18 months and, you know, possibly fundraise in that period of time. So, so there is definitely a lot more pressure to grow and to grow rapidly. And I guess the excuse that you had till then is, you know, because I don't have funding, I can't hire and therefore, you know, things are a little bit slow. So I, I would say that it's important while you're still going through that process to start figuring out, you know, how are you going to get that rapid growth? Because some of those things take time to, you know, put in place. So for example, you know, if I want to hire somebody, once I secure the funding, I should probably already have like a JD out, be talking to people, probably also have like, you know, close to offers being made, etc. For us, of course, you know, all of these things held true. We were thinking of hiring, we were thinking of like going more aggressively into the sales space. But what we realized was that you can't turn on the tap for those things as quickly as you would like, right? So literally the six months post YC were, you know, while we were seeing more traction, we were working with more customers. There were a bunch of things that were disappointing, right? Like we were not able to onboard customers as quickly as we would want. We had no idea, you know, whether it was going to be inbound or outbound, you know, what exact segment should we focus on? Is it the mid-market or is it SMB? Um, so all of those questions still needed to be figured out. Until you figure those out, you can't blindly scale. But I think the good thing was that YC kind of told us that it's 
okay to do things that don't scale in your early days, right? So at that point, we were like, we are not going to just throw money blindly because there is money in the bank. We are going to still do the basics of figuring out, you know, what the fits are, what the right strategy is before we, you know, fully commit ourselves and scale it up. So yeah, I would say it was stressful, disappointing, and we held our ground. <laughs> Interesting. Since you made that YC reference, the help that you got or the you know, tidbits of advice, just to continue on that, beyond capital, where did you seek help from, from your investors? Typically, what did you reach out to them for the most and where did you see the value at beyond capital? Yeah, so I think, you know, um, I would split it out into YC and our other investors, right? So I think with YC, it was, of course, you know, the YC program, which taught us a lot more about how everybody's journey on the inside is ugly and broken and painful, right? And I think that's like literally the one message that YC wants to give every founder is like, hey, you know, all you see is TechCrunch stories. They all look great. They're all polished and positive. But, you know, inside that, you know, every founder is just like literally going through shit, right? And you get to hear that firsthand from, you know, the founders that you've admired and looked at from a distance, right? Like Stripe, Airbnb, Justin Khan. So then it really hits home that, you know, at any point, if you're feeling completely, you know, broken and down in the dumps, you're not the only person. Lots of people have done that. And I think that was an important lesson, even though I kind of make fun of it. And besides that, we did go back to YC when we had specific questions around like, you know, when we were trying to rebrand, we were trying to, so we changed our name midway. So we started out as strings.ai and, and during YC, we actually decided to rebrand. And so through that process, we would go back and we would seek specific advice to our situation. With our other investors, what we realized, which was very helpful was the ability to again, go back and look for people who were walking the path maybe you know a couple of years ahead of us so that we knew you know what mistakes to avoid because you only have that much time to make mistakes so you might as well make new ones so i think that was there are other founders who are most helpful they were also helpful in you know getting us some early intros to you know different types of experts whether that was like a product marketing expert or a sales expert somewhere and to some of our potential customers, right? They connected us to prospects. So I think those were the things that we found really helpful. We would also go back to them with, you know, different scenarios of how we were thinking about things. And then very often, I think just as a reflection of how early the SaaS ecosystem in India is, you know, at least four or five years back, uh, they wouldn't necessarily have like, you know, ready answers or labels, but they were very generous in saying, Hey, if this is the question that you're struggling with, let me go find out three people who you could talk to to help you answer that question. So those were the things that we would go back to people for. And speaking of early days of SaaS, I know that you've relied on communities to also help you navigate this journey. We spoke about YC. You're very active with, with SaaS Boomi. In fact, I was reading on how you actually met Clary at Dreamforce, if I recollect right. But would, would that also be another recommendation from you to ask founders to actively seek out these communities around you and be a part of them? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say that, and like, for me, I, you know, when I first went to like a SaaS Boomi event, right, that was in maybe 2018 or 2019 Jan, 
it was it was like i didn't know what i was looking for right like i'd been to a bunch of corporate conferences and you show up there you listen to a few talks you you know you hang out at the cocktail bar and you know you'll probably meet five people and come back and you know you'll forget all about it but what was really surprising for me when i went for those early saas bumi annual sessions was like just the raw painful lessons that people were sharing that they from having built their companies and you know mistakes that they had made and people were so generous and honest about it uh, and i think that totally changed my perspective because everybody wants to look good right like especially in a public social setting you're like hey i'm the hero i'm the heroine right you know like you have to walk away from this feeling impressed by me but the fact that these communities were actually trying to tell you and this is also true for yc in that sense right like they were actually trying to tell you that hey the founding journey is hard but you don't have to do it alone and you know there are other people who've done the same painful things and that was super helpful so a few examples of what i would go back to the community for right like i would go back for simple things like hey i'm trying to hire a chief of staff you know is this a good time for me to do that what are the profiles that i should look for what should my jd you know ask for what should the hiring process look like right what should the first 90 day plan for this person look like right like so when you're hiring for a new role and you've never done that role you've never seen anybody doing that role first hand and how do you actually kind of think of th- think about it end to end right so for, even for simple things like that i would like you know go set up calls with three other founders who've done this over the last two years and then that would just give me so much more perspective so yeah I, i mean i used those communities you know completely not being shy of asking for help and that was a, a real savior for me and one thing that i've been looking forward to ask you is i also see igmin as a coaching product and you've mentioned that different thought processes go into hiring the first few reps of a company or a division versus the later team that follows but what is running a coaching product in wingman you know helped you with your own coaching principles with the internal team that's a great question i think you know so to some extent the uh, the coaching aspect of wingman right it tries to solve for one very specific thing in in the overall coaching context right and, and the specific thing is that we all need a lot of repetition to you know make a change right so it's like saying that if i need to you know like if i need to develop a habit i need to be doing it every day and for me to do it every day requires me to kind of build a whole process around doing it right so wingman kind of helps solve for that problem and i think i've always been conscious of the fact that you know we all think of coaching and feedback as point in time events you know that maybe happen once a month but that is kind of where it breaks down because you do something once a month it just doesn't change somebody's habits what does your first few versus what do later folks look like i think we, we kind of stumbled on this by accident but what we realized was that if you can actually hire people who've tried to start up or you know have ambitions of starting up as your early employees you will actually do yourself a lot of favor because those people are not going to you know they are going to be almost like your founding team they are not going to come and question like hey you hired me as an engineer why do you want me to sit and do support calls or you know you hired me as an engineer and now why are you making me like run this marketing campaign for you so i think across the board like your early hires need to be great smart 
generalists who just want to learn everything. And, you know, it's okay if they have their own ambition for why they want to learn everything, which is around them becoming entrepreneurs in the future. Interesting. And you've also spoken about how selflessness is overrated, as well as the importance of empathy. But just extending on that on that thought in terms of what have been some of the beyond the obvious or maybe even like intangible traits that you think have been more useful in your journey than some of the obvious, like, you know, finding the right team or obviously getting to the right customer persona, et cetera, et cetera. That's a hard one. (laughs) So I think actually, you know, one thing that people have come back and said, right, many times to us is just how much they felt they were part of like a team and a family while they were going through the journey and, you know, how that gave them the courage to go and do things that they would have otherwise been scared of doing, right? I think, and then I go back and think about like, you know, how did, what role did we have in making that happen? I think the biggest thing that we did was being coming out and open, being open about our own mistakes, right? So if you develop that culture top down of saying that, hey, you know, if I make a mistake, if something screws up, I'm going to come and talk about it. And I'm going to then talk about it in the fashion of saying, hey, this was version one. Now, what have we learned and what does version two look like? So I think that was maybe something that helped. So yeah, maybe some sort of, you know, candid beating yourself up. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. And and similarly with winning your first customer, you've spoken about how you started writing code sometime May 18 and you actually got your first paying customer October 18. You also made this very valid point of don't confuse your first degree connects and second degree connects or your friendly intros and your friendly paying customers the same and don't treat them the same as somebody who's actually say like a founder outbound or gone through the sales process. And the feedback that each of these personas give may be very different and validly so. But how do you navigate that journey? Because the first few, most founders will argue rightfully so as well, that your first few customers will all be founder-led outbounds, first degree, second degree, investor connect, community connect, et cetera. But how do you really differentiate who's giving me real advice, constructive feedback versus the, the friendly initial customers? So I think there are maybe a few hacks to figuring out, right? Like one is definitely, are they using your product, right? Like how much do they care about, you know, if you turned off your product for them tomorrow, will they find out within the hour or within the week or within (laughs) the month, right? And I think that, you know, that tells you something about both what your product is doing for them and to how much they care about the product. Because even if you gave the same product to two different companies, right? It's perfectly possible that one company, you know, uses it once a month and another company uses it every hour, right? Now, you could argue that there are a lot of signals that you can figure out between those two, you know, whether it's the type of company or whether it is, whether they're paying for the product or not paying for the product, right? So I think, you know, definitely have a threshold of taking advice from people who are using the product, right? Unless their advice is around why the product is useless for them at that point in time, right? Um, The second thing we did was how much time are they willing to spend with us, right? So, you know, with the early customers, it's okay to set the expectation that, hey, can we do like a feedback call every month, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we'll make it useful for you. We'll give you a bunch of reports that, you know, the product doesn't already have. We'll, We'll show you some interesting stats or whatever we are seeing. But 
can you also spend that time in telling us how, you know what the pro- product is doing for you or not doing for you and if they don't show up for those calls you very quickly know that you know this is not the customer that's going to necessarily scale with you right um so i think some of those things we learned and i i agree it's perfectly okay to start out with customers who are through your network but you know maybe just give differential weightage to the feedback coming from people who are you know ideally who don't know you and who are paying for your product you know at a price point that you actually expect to be paid at and through this journey because you always felt strongly about the about the product itself and and the, and the capability of the the feature set did you need to reposition the sell though like the narrative that customers wanted to hear to convert faster or or to pay the price that you felt was right but specifically the question is did you have to reposition the sell in those early 12 15 months and and maybe many times so till you arrive at you know what are those words that they want to hear or what's actually landing well with them yeah absolutely so i think we did almost like a 300 degree turn pivoting maybe 60 degrees at a time <laughs> um, but but there were like you know many things that we changed and you know some of it was just us realizing what is the language that uh, yeah. you know a buyer speaks in uh, you know we were like you know nerdy mathematical analytical you know founders going in and trying to sell to a sales audience in the us which is probably like the diametrically opposite personalities and so you have to realize that you know they are not going to be very fascinated if you keep saying ab testing and they are like you know what the hell is that so i think some of it was just cultural and language some of it was actually trying to see what was you know the people who were using the product and the value that they were getting what were they using it for right so very often the mistake we make is we you know we have like this five year plan for the product and we go sell that plan to the customer and then you know they go and use the product and you know that five year plan is that it's 10% execution and then they are like yeah but it doesn't do any of the things that you promised that it would and so i don't know how to use the product right so it's important to actually call out what is your long term vision versus hey this is you know the wow moment for you with the product today all right very often to generate excitement we all focus on the long term vision but we don't create enough excitement for the short term what the product can deliver today right so i think that was kind of another thing that we learned as we pivoted around a little bit the third reason why we pivoted our messaging was we realized that you know we underestimate how people will view the effort that is required from them to get value out of the product and mm-hmm. if you only focus on things that are going to require them to spend like 5 hours before they will get 5 minutes of value then it's just not going to happen and so what they're going to do is they're going to say oh this is really exciting but in their mind they are thinking oh i don't have the time to do this so you know i'll think about it later so it was also about saying what is the quick value that i can show them which doesn't require them to invest time so so yeah i mean there were various reasons we pivoted a lot we were literally trying to get our messaging right you know every 3 to 4 months and at what point of time would you actually feel that this messaging is beginning to work and you started getting that early escape velocity on on sales and 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 the pitch and the, and the right narrative so yeah i think it was and i think the struggle with the early days is also that you sometimes don't have enough volume of people yeah. seeing the changes in your messaging for you to know whether you know the messaging has started working or not right like the signals are so weak so i think <coughs> for me i felt it was easiest to test out different types of messaging in a large event 
set up right where i'm literally able to introduce myself to you know 50 people in a day and every time i could have a different message and i could just see you know what does it look like in their eyes right so i would say that's kind of you know part of things that don't scale right mm-hmm. that you probably want to do early on to quickly iterate on your message for us when did we start feeling that it resonated and again you know i can say this and i can also say that it's hard for me to know whether it was the message or the time but what happened was that you know the pandemic happened right and that was a game changer for our industry and at that point we were also beginning to see a lot of traction and people were coming in and you know we were having sales cycles as short as 24 hours and i could you know i can say that you know that's when the messages started clicking <laughs> or i don't know whether the product market fit got found because of external reasons but but yeah i i think even once you have that initial fit you are still constantly trying to iterate on the message because it's such a dynamic world right your competition is changing your customers requirements are changing your product is changing so yeah and yeah, and what an incredible journey it's been. I'm just cognizant of time. So I want to say thank you so much for coming and sharing your thoughts. And one last question that I'm going to sneak in, they say once a founder, always a founder. So keen and curious to ask you what, what lies ahead. And I want to circle that back to that early question on founders and the three of you. And if you could speak a little bit on their behalf in terms of how are the, each of you seeing this journey today, having been there from seed to scale and now exit? And how did this pan out from each of your, like each of the three founder views and each of your three perspectives? Right. So I'll reserve the, you know, the first question for later. I think (laughs) for all three of us, it's, you know, it's been different types of validation and excitement through the journey, Mm -hmm. right? So for example, for Shrikar, who's our CTO, his biggest joys came from, you know, solving a technically challenging problem, building scale, right, uh, to, you know, when you go from X to 10X to 1000X, right, like each time the technical equations of those things are very, very different, right? He also took a lot of joy in seeing himself grow as, you know, somebody who was hiring people, mentoring them, and being able to bring them up to speed, especially in an environment where it was just so hard to hire in 2020, right? 2021. So I think, you know, we he, he would probably describe some of those as major milestones in that journey. And I think today, you know, for him, a lot of those challenges, even post-exit, continue to be the same, right? At a different scale, of course. So, you know, I think that's, that's kind of been his trajectory for it. I think for Murli, the trajectory was more around seeing a broader picture, right? So even though he comes from a tech background, he had worked in an early stage startup before, which had gotten acquired. And I think what he had enjoyed was seeing the energy of the early stage startup. But, you know, at that point, his role was still very much an engineering role. So Mm -hmm. here, I think his journey was more around seeing the diversity of uh, roles and problems. And he kind of became our de facto people person at the company, right? So he would be the person who was always cognizant of, you know, how do we drive engagement with employees in a lockdown situation? How do we make sure that we are, you know, doing the right things for hiring? How are we being, you know, deliberate about the culture that we are setting, et cetera? So I think it was phenomenal growth across those very different dimensions. 
And today, of course, you know, he's running engineering for Wingman within Clary. And now it's a completely different set of challenges in terms of integrating the products, doing all sorts of enterprise stuff for the product that needs to happen. Yeah. And I think both of them would very much be in the once a founder, always a founder. <laughs> I don't know about myself. <laughs> Fantastic. But for whatever it is that lies ahead, more power, more praise to you. Wish you all the very best. And thank you once again, sincerely for sharing your journey and having such a lovely and insightful conversation. Thank you so much. Shruti. Thanks, Anjali. I enjoyed it.